like to invite your attention this morning to the 34th Psalm. We're, we're going to look at the 34th Psalm. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine. We're going to have the, the verses right up on the screen uh, as we progress through. Um, in the little town that I grew up in, a little seashore community on the Jersey coast, there was this uh, family that lived across the street from us uh, that had just a summer house um, and lived in northern New Jersey during the week. And the man in the house uh, worked in Manhattan uh, at an advertising firm. And I remember talking to him one time about uh, money uh, that people spend on advertising. And some of their clients were some of the really big firms, you know, the uh, uh, pharmaceutical firms, uh, household items, people like Johnson & Johnson, all that. And he said, but you know, Gary, the truth is, he said, we know in advertising that the vast majority of money the companies spend on advertising, they do it basically to keep up with their competitors. He said, it really doesn't do a whole lot of good. He said, to be honest with you, the way that most people decide to buy a product is not by a, a magazine ad or a television commercial. The way that most people decide to buy a product is because either a friend, a family member, or someone that they trust told them, look, this is, this is a good product. This really works. You need to try this. He said, that's why people, that's why people buy things. He said, and I never forget this part, he said, there's nothing more powerful than the honest testimony of a satisfied customer. And as I've thought about that over the years, um, particularly in regard to Psalm 34, uh, I think that applies in the spiritual realm as well. I don't think you and I realize sometimes how powerful uh, our own recommendations are in terms of what we have seen God do in our lives and the way that he has worked in our lives. And I hope that's what we're going to have a, a look at this morning. Uh, so I'm kind of portraying David as we start as a truly satisfied customer in terms of his spiritual life with the God of the Bible. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for life and breath and a new day. Um, and Lord, would you please, as the psalm writer says, would you open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> Notice David's... Uh, what I'm calling, number one, the testimony of a truly satisfied customer. He starts out uh, in verses 4 and 8, and he says, I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I've been in trouble, says David, serious trouble, deep trouble. And if you've read uh, anything about David's life in the Old Testament, you can identify with that. It seems like he was always in trouble. He said, I've been in really bad trouble, and I want you to know that God delivered me. God delivered me, and I want you to know that since he delivered me, he'll deliver you too. He'll deliver you too. I've tasted, I've seen that the Lord is good. Now you taste. Now you see. He's delivered me, and I'm confident that he's going to do the same for you. So David's saying, listen, God delivered me, and I am a truly satisfied customer, and I can't hold this in. I've got to share this with other people. So he's, he's telling us, he's giving us his heartfelt recommendation. You're wondering, where's that coming from? Well, we'll see that in a minute. Look at number two. Here's David's testimony of deliverance, verses 4 and 6. He says, I sought the Lord, and he delivered me. I'm sorry, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. This poor man called out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Notice he mentions fears and troubles. Uh, and we don't have to wonder in this case what they are. 
Remember about uh, three, three or four weeks ago, Pastor Jim mentioned in one of his messages that the, uh, the chapter breakdowns and the verse breakdowns in the Bible are not inspired as the text is. And that's absolutely correct. One of the things that is inspired that we don't often pay much attention to are what theologians sometimes refer to as the key to the psalm. Now, not all the psalms have them. But notice that Psalm 34 has what we refer to as a key. It's a little blurb that's directly under the words Psalm 34, but before the first verse. And in Psalm 34, uh, this is what it says. It says, Of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. Now, the full, ca- the full account of this situation and how David ended up in front of Abimelech, you can read that for yourselves uh, when you go home or whenever. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Uh, but let me just give you a quick recap. Uh, David, uh, for the first time, has realized that Saul doesn't really like him. Uh, and that's putting it mildly. And, and David and Jonathan have a meeting in which they come to the conclusion that Saul wants to kill Jonathan. I'm sorry, kill David. So David is fleeing from the homicidal rage of King Saul, who is rapidly losing possession of his faculties and rapidly uh, sliding away from God as well. So he's running from King Saul, uh, and he gets to the point as he leaves the, if you looked at a map of Israel, as he leaves the kind of central ridge route where uh, the central Benjamin Plateau are and where the where Jerusalem is and uh, as he leaves that area and he heads west toward the Mediterranean coast, uh, Saul is pursuing him. Um, you'll be able to, as you read, you'll see that uh, David comes across a particularly uh, unsavory character, a guy named Doeg the Edomite. Um, but here's what happens. Essentially, David is terrified of Saul. This is the beginning, understand, of Saul's attempts to kill David, which evidently went on for a couple of years, several years. So this is the start of it. David is petrified. The word for fear there in Psalm 34 is a very, very strong word. And so he finds himself heading westward, and he doesn't know which way to turn, and he makes the decision to go into Philistine territory. Okay? Uh, now, in all honesty, David seeking refuge. Understand, remember the Israelites had a song? Saul has slain, speaking of their... You know how the Israelites were always at war with the Philistines? They had a song that they sang. Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain... Tens of thousands. Exactly, tens of thousands. So David seeking refuge in the land of the, Phili- of the Philistines would be, and I was trying to think of a modern-day illustration, this would be a little bit like Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel getting into some difficulties and deciding to, deciding to go hide and try to find help in the Gaza Strip or some other area of the West Bank. Just not a good idea, you know? But David, again, when, you, when you're fearful, when you're that scared, you do some things that are oftentimes not reasonable. So he flees into Philistine territory, and what happens? He's captured, and more than that, he's recognized. They realize who he is. Now David's really afraid. And what do they do? They drag him before Abimelech, the king of Gath, the king of the Philistines. And again, that word fear uh, could actually be translated terrified. David is that frightened. So what does he do? What are you going to do, guys, in that kind of situation? Well, David's first resort is prayer. 
He prays. He prays. Did you hear about the, uh, the lady who was in the hospital and um, they couldn't find out what was wrong with her, but she had some very serious symptoms and the pastor came to the hospital to see her and he said, uh, Martha, he said, look, I've just heard what's going on and I've come to pray with you. And she said, oh my goodness, has it come to that? See, for a lot of us, prayer is like a last resort. But for David, it's not. For David, it's the first resort. It's the very first place he goes. So David prays. In verse 4, he says, I sought the Lord. Verse 6, this poor man cried out. And when he prays, as he prays, he gets an idea. He gets an idea. You know what? Maybe a little play acting will work. So David pretends to be completely mad. He, he pretends to be completely out of his mind. And again, read the account in 1 Samuel 21. You'll see that he's, he's growling and he's moaning and groaning and he's scratching at the floors and the walls and he, it says that he drools down onto his beard. And that's how they bring him before Abimelech. Now, understand that Abimelech here is, is what we might call a dynastic title. You know how all of the uh, Roman emperors were called Caesars, right? Well, all of the Philistine emperors were called Abimelechs. This particular guy, his name is Achish. Now, Achish, like the other Philistine kings, they were very famous for their physical prowess, very famous for their brawn, but evidently not so famous for their brains. So <laughs> David puts on this act and and pretends to be completely mad, and, and Achish, a bit like, swallows it, hook, line, and sinker. And he starts screaming at his, at his men that brought David in. He says, listen, have, I got, have we got a shortage of lunatics in our kingdom? You know, Don't we have enough wackos right here in Gath that you had to bring this man in here? Get him out of here before he drools all over the royal carpets. Throw him out. And that's exactly what they do. I often picture, you know how in the old westerns, you know, the, the saloon doors swing, you know, like this. And, and, you know, when people get tossed out of saloons, you see them come flying through the saloon door, you know, and they, they hit the, the, the dirt or the wooden sidewalk and go tumbling down the steps. I picture in my mind, it doesn't say it in the text, but I picture in my mind something like that, that they literally grab David by the scuff of his neck and chuck him out the door. And he goes tumbling down the steps of the palace and lands in the dirt of the street. Probably bruised, beaten up a little bit, maybe bloodied, but nonetheless, with his head still firmly attached to his shoulders, for which David is extremely, extremely grateful. <laughs> so, and here's the thing, guys, as he lands in the street, and this is critical, he doesn't, he knows he's not lucky. He knows this is not chance. He knows that it wasn't his own brilliance that came up with this idea to feign madness. David knows that that idea to feign madness was a direct answer to prayer. That in that clutch moment, probably a matter of just a couple minutes, when he didn't know what to do, God instructed him exactly what to do and made sure that the plan came off exactly as God intended it to. So as he, as he lays there on the street, beaten up and bruised, he's extremely grateful. You know, 
I got to tell you, when when uh, when Pastor Jim invited me to to fill in for him this week, um, I had until last Sunday decided to preach on something completely different. But last Sunday, as I sat here, Jim was talking about the transition that we're making to the new building, um, and he talked about the fact that many people here in Bergen Park Church have prayed for somewhere around sixteen is it sixteen seventeen years, Jim, for the for the property, and and that. Even pulling out as he would leave at the end of the day, that Jim would stop for a minute at the driveway and just pray about that property. And then he said this. He said, when I tell people about the property, they all want to know about the construction and how we're going to pay for it, blah, 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 blah. But mainly, uh, he likes to get across to people that this is an answer to prayer. It's not just that, you know, we got lucky with the property, that, that we had some people in the church who were extremely generous. It, those things are important. Uh, but it was God. It's a God thing. It's an answer to prayer. And then he said this. He said, why is it that we keep on praying year after year after year after year? Is it because God needs to be reminded? No. It's because we need the reminder. It's because we need the prayer. And last Sunday, sitting right there, that hit me right here. Because, folks, in the midst of some radical changes in our life as a family, uh, getting out of full-time pastoral ministry, moving uh, almost 2,000 miles from Pennsylvania to Colorado, uh, building a new house, I'll be honest with you, I, I haven't been praying as I should. And the title of the, my message this morning, Living Expectantly, I haven't been living expectantly. I have in the past. But if you're anything like me, do you find that some of the disciplines of the Christian life that we tend to drift in and out of them, but God in his grace never lets us get too far and he sends these reminders. And when Jim said that last week, I thought, how many times over the years have I said to people, prayer is not primarily our way of changing God. Prayer is primarily God's way of changing us. Prayer is not primarily us trying to get God in on what we want to do. Prayer is primarily God giving us the opportunity to get in on what He's doing. And it's only as we are faithful to to pray like that, that that we begin to, our spiritual eyesight really begins to open and things that we would otherwise just count off to coincidence. We suddenly realize when we're, when we're sharp spiritually the way we're supposed to be, when we're praying the way we're supposed to be, we begin to recognize things that clearly have the fingerprint of God on them. They have nothing to do with luck or chance. It's God's hand working and moving in our lives. And last week when I saw that, I thought, you know what? I'm not preaching on that. I, I got to get back where I belong. So listen to what David says. David knows that God delivered him. He knows it wasn't a coincidence or a chance. And look what he says uh, in verses 1 through 3. He says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. David's saying, listen, if in the past I have been slack about praising God, for the ways that he has delivered me and, and shown up in my life, I'm never going to be slack again. I'm going to praise him, and I'm going to praise him morning, noon, and night. And then he says, you know, look at me, folks. You know, I'm, I'm thrilled by this. I'm radiant, verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. 
And he says, listen, believe me, people who trust the Lord, people who are expecting God to show up in their life like that, they always end up glowing like that. Why? Because the Lord protects them. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. The situation may look hopeless. You may be fearful, like David, you might even be terrified, but at the end of the day, you will not be flushed with fear, says David. You will be radiant with joy. God never leaves his children unattended. So David doesn't want this to be a solo, okay? He says, glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And see, at the same time, David, as a satisfied customer, who, yeah, he wants, he's dying for you and I to try this too. But he wants to tell us, listen, if you want to live expectantly, if you really want to recognize God showing up in your circumstances week in and week out, day in and day out, then there are a couple of things that you need to do. David's personal recommendations, number three. There's two main things here, guys. Number one, you must have a profound fear of God. You must have a profound fear of God. Look at how many times David says that in this psalm. Look at verse 7, first of all. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he, does, and he delivers them. Look at verse 9. Fear the Lord, you his people, for those who fear him lack nothing. Verse 11. Come, my children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of of the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it, how David emphasizes again and again, four times in those three verses, fear the Lord, fear the Lord, fear the Lord. And why is he doing that? Well, understand that the way David has been living, the way his life's been going, the dominant emotion in his life has been fear. Uh, even as he writes this psalm, fear of, fear of Saul, fear of false brethren like the unscrupulous Doeg, the Edomite, uh, fear of the Philistines. He's been living in, in an atmosphere of fear. So here's the thing. What you and I need is we need a God who is so awesome, so terrible, and I mean that word in the best sense, that we fear him more than we fear any other person or circumstance that life can ever possibly bring before us. You know, uh, the guys that I hung around with in high school and played baseball with in high school, we, uh, we, had a, we did a lot of things together uh, after high school through my 20s. And uh, I became a believer in my mid-20s. So these guys knew me, you know, from teens until my conversion. And after I'd been a believer for a few years, I just found that there were certain activities that I used to take part in with them that I just, I just couldn't do it anymore, you know. And uh, they would see me uh, in certain circumstances where suddenly uh, a situation would come up or, uh, and I use this word loosely, an opportunity would come up where I would just say, you know what, guys, I've got to go. <laughs> I'm sorry, i gotta, you know, I got to leave now, you know. Well, one of them, uh, I'll never forget him, a good friend I haven't seen in years and years. His name is Sam. And uh, he had a little bit in, in Jersey, uh, what do they call the local yokels around here? Not Hicks. Is there a particular name for them? Not really. In Jersey, it's pineys because of the Jersey pine lands. There's a million acre pines, so we call them pineys. Well, Sam was a real piney, and they have kind of a slur when they talk, you know. 
And by then, my nickname was the Reverend among my my friends. And he said, you know what, Reverend? He goes, you, you've really become a good person, haven't you? And I said, why do you say that, Sam? He said, because you don't do a lot of the shenanigans you used to. And I said, well, Sam, can I tell you something in all honesty? And I, and I meant this from my heart when I said to him, I said, I am not a good person. <laughs> but what I am, I, I'm afraid of the consequences that God would bring into my life if I still engaged in those shenanigans. And I, and that's, that's the truth, guys. Most of the, of the big mistakes that I have avoided in my life are not because I'm a good person. Romans 3, 10, Romans 3, 10 and 11 applies to every one of us. There is none good, right? Not even one. So why didn't I do those things? Fear of what consequences God might bring into my life. And that's okay, guys. That's really okay. That's a good thing. Every one of us needs a good, healthy fear of God. You know, over 300 years ago, uh, Nicholas Brady and Nahum Tate wrote a hymn in the late 1600s based on this Psalm 34. And the final stanza of that hymn says this. I'll just read it. It says, fear him, you saints, and then you will have nothing else to fear. If God is the greatest fear in your life and mine, then what do we have to be afraid of? Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. You know, the problem with most of us is our God is just too small. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever used the J.B. Phillips translation of the Bible, but J.B. Phillips also wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. Great little book. And he's absolutely right. For many of us, our God is just too small. For many people, he's, he's like, he's a good luck charm. He's, he's their, their heavenly buddy. You know, he's the man upstairs. Well, you know what? That's not who God is. That's not who the God of the Bible is. And you and I can't look at him that way. The God of the Bible is, is the all-consuming, omnipotent God who created the universe from nothing. Remember what the Apostle Paul said when he stood before the Athenian elders uh, in Acts chapter 17? He said to them, it is in him that we live and move and have our being, our very existence. That's who this God is. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. I remember one of my seminary profs saying this. Think about, think about the omniscience of God. He not only knows all things... But he knows all things that are possible and he knows them simultaneously and eternally. Wow. Wow. Is your God getting a little bigger? I hope as we look at this. And David is saying, look, if you and I are ever going to really taste and really see that the Lord is good, then we're going to have to experience for ourselves how wonderful he is and become truly satisfied customers with a holy, reverent, controlling fear of God in our lives. So, number one, we need a very real fear of God. And number two, and of just as great importance, I think, is you and I need to let the Lord define what deliverance means in our lives. We need to let the Lord decide what deliverance means in our lives. 
See, the Bible makes it clear that suffering is an absolutely inevitable part of life. It's one of the things, like Jim said to me once, he said, you really enjoy the Psalms, don't you? And I do. I do. One of the reasons I enjoy the Psalms so much is they are so brutally honest about how painful and difficult life really is. Well, the Bible is as a whole, but particularly the Psalms. Life is not easy. I don't find it easy anyway. I found it really hard. So suffering is an inevitable part of it, and but we need to let God decide when and how we are going to be delivered from that suffering. You know, a lot of us, we don't mind if we get a little bit of suffering for a little while, but once... Once it's gone on for, you know, you know how pain and suffering can, can tend to grind on you a little bit? Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, we're building a house out in Evergreen West, as a number of you already know that. And our house back in Pennsylvania has been for sale for a year. And one of the reasons I felt so convicted last week when Jim talked about ceaseless prayer uh, is I basically, I mean, I'll still pray about it at meals. I don't. I had stopped praying about it on a daily basis. You know why? I didn't expect God to do anything about it anymore. I'll just be honest. I was. I was tired of asking and knocking. I don't have the right to do that as a believer, but I was. And what what David is saying here is: Listen, you and I cannot tell God when deliverance has to come. And how it should come and in what shape and form it should come. We can't tell him when enough pain is enough. God decides that. And if we're going to be people of the book who, who really live expectantly and really see God show up at critical times when he decides to, then we need to let him define what deliverance means in our lives. Notice verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. But the problem comes in when we as believers want to define deliverance for him. We want to decide how long we suffer. We want to decide when it's enough's enough, Lord, that's it. But notice this verse, very critical verse, Psalm 34 and verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Now notice the next verse, even more important. Verse 20, he guards all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Does that sound familiar to anybody? If it sounds familiar to you, it's because it's repeated in John's account, in the Gospel of John, of the crucifixion of our Lord. And I'm going to read uh, verses from John chapter 19. I'm going to read verses 31 through 36. Follow along with me if you would as I read. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs and the bodies to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Verse 35. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. I love, I love John. <laughs> he knows that he tells the truth. And he testifies so that you also may believe. Verse 36, now notice this. These things happened so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one 
of his bones will be broken. I don't know what that says to you, but what it says to me is in the midst of the horror, the brutality, the unspeakable pain, and if you've seen the Passion of the Christ, that's an accurate depiction of what they did to our Lord. In the midst of that unspeakable brutality, where they beat him within, literally within an inch of his life, so that he couldn't, barely, was unable on his own to carry his cross. In the midst of all that, do you believe this? God the Father, through David in Psalm 34, a thousand years earlier had said he was going to deliver his son in the midst of that horrible, unspeakable brutality. And the way he was going to deliver him was this. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now, if you're anything like me, when I look at that, what hit me was, Lord, I... I don't see a whole lot of deliverance there. (laughs) Really? If I'm going through what Jesus went through, and you've promised to deliver me, I want a little more help than not getting a broken bone. I mean, what he went through was unspeakable. But God the Father was saying, was, you know what? I'm going to deliver my son, but I'm going to deliver him in my own way. Not one. And and you know what this shows us? In the midst of all that horror of what our Lord went through, not one single thing happened by accident. And during the entire horror show, God the Father was in absolute, total, sovereign control of everything that was going on. And he demonstrated it by saying a thousand years earlier through David, not one of his bones will be broken. Now, that may not be the deliverance you and I would want or that you and I would ask for, but it's the deliverance that God wanted. It's the deliverance that God provided. And therefore, as Jesus freely accepted it, you and I need to let God define what deliverance means in our lives. And what did it really mean for our Lord? Well, what it meant was he experienced As a human being, because he was both God and man, he experienced the ultimate deliverance. And guys, the ultimate deliverance for us as believers is being delivered from this temporary life of suffering to eternal joy and eternal bliss. That's the ultimate deliverance. God never promised that you and I would have a pain-free, easy, smooth ride through this life. Quite the contrary. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But he does guarantee us an absolutely perfect and safe landing in glory for every single believer. (laughs) Excuse me. Is it any wonder that the psalm writer says this in Psalm 116 and verse 15, precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now again, We don't necessarily look at that as deliverance. I'm not in any hurry to get there, Lord. I got a lot of things I want to do here first. Might be precious in your eyes, but I got an agenda. When I have to, I'll go. But 
It may not be a precious thing to, to you and I, but it is to God. And guys, if we want, if we want to be people who can live expectantly, if we want to be people who see God showing up in our lives on a regular basis, then we must let Him define what deliverance is and we must accept what He says deliverance is. Is, is it really precious in the sight of the Lord, the death of His saints? Yeah. And frankly, while we may not be in a hurry to get there, and I'm not either, but it ought to be precious to us too. The, you know, you know one thing I find, I don't know about you guys, the older I get, the less disturbing it is. It's like, you know what? What a day that's going to be. What a day that's going to be when we actually graduate. I want to close with an illustration. Um, one of my uh, favorite seminary professors, actually a man, I had, two, I had two professors in the seminary that heavily influenced me. Uh, one of them just passed away uh, just a week or so before Christmas, uh, Dr. Earl Rodmacher. Dr. Rodmacher was... Uh, for 27 years, he was the president of Western Conservative Baptist Seminary in Portland, where I graduated. Um, and I remember Dr. Rodmacher telling us this story one day in class, and I'll be quick. Uh, he was very—he was not only uh, president of the seminary, but very active. He and Ruth, his wife, very active uh, in their local church. And he told us the story of a gal that he and Ruth had led to faith, one of their neighbors. And it was one of those situations where she came to faith in her late 40s and she just took off. She just took off. Earl said, I have never seen a more dynamic, uh, more loving, more spirit-filled believer than Sherry. And he said, Sherry basically turned our community upside down in a good way. In a good way. She would, some believers can be on fire and be obnoxious. She was on fire and a comfort and a joy to everybody. Then after two years of that, she suddenly comes, ends up in the hospital, and they tell her she has, she has third-stage uh, ovarian cancer, and she's terminal. And Dr. Rob Mecker said, Ruth and I went to see her in the hospital. He said, and you have to understand, this is the most effervescent and bubbly person I've ever seen in my life. said she laid there expressionless and didn't even want to talk to us. And finally, Ruth said, I want to give you a minute with her. And Ruth walked out, and Earl said, I prayed with her. And I said, I'd come back. And I started to leave. And she said, why has God done this to me, Dr. Rodmacher? And he said, what? She said, why has God put me on the shelf? She goes, now I can't do anything for him. She said, I am not afraid to die, but I am afraid of not being useful for the Lord. And he said, Sherry, Sherry, he goes, have you ever thought about how fearful people are of death? Is it any, you know, realize what the writer of Hebrews chapter 2 says, that Jesus Christ came to deliver those who through fear of death were all their lives subject to bondage. He said, you, God hasn't put you on a shelf. He said, you have the opportunity to show the world what it looks like to die with a sure, certain, expectant hope that you're going to be with Jesus Christ forever. And he said, the next day I came back, he said, she was sitting up in the chair and saying, when am I getting discharged? He said, and the last six months of Sherry's life were even more dynamic than the first two years of her Christian life. Why? Because this is a gal that, that knew that God had invaded her life and circumstances, that he had delivered her from her own sin and guaranteed her eternal life. And she wanted the world to see Jesus living in her. How about you? How about me? 
going back to the question that uh, we started with, when's the last time you knew that God showed up in your life and circumstances? And I close with this quote from one of my old favorite commentators, Dr. Handley Moole. He was the, an Anglican clergyman in England. He was the Bishop of Durham in the late 1800s, early 1900s, but just an incredible man of God. I have a little book by him. It's called Thoughts on Sanctification. And he says this. He says, do you feel like God isn't at work in your life? Do you feel like he's no longer intervening in your life and circumstances? If so, may I respectfully suggest it is because you no longer expect him to. God, give us the grace to live expectantly and to see the Lord's hand in our life day in and day out. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you comfort when we need comfort, that you convict when we need conviction. Help us all to be more open on the Godward side, to be more sensitive to your presence in our lives, and to take David's cue, his recommendation, to taste and see that you are indeed good and you you rejoice in delivering your people from every affliction. Lord, we look forward to the ultimate deliverance to that day when we're with you forever. In the meantime, give us the grace to fear you as we should and give us the grace to let you define what deliverance means in our life. We all ask every bit of it. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.